So by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCourse subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed, plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. By way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee byway of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. If you had told me that a year ago I would meet a mentor, albeit virtually, in the middle of a pandemic, and that this encounter would fundamentally validate the beliefs that I had surrounding mealtime and simultaneously fill my personal cup first as a mama and second as a practitioner. Well, y'all, honestly, I would have called your bluff and for sure thought that you had tipped your scales in the quarantine. But y'all, honestly, that's basically what happened. 
So if you don't know what I'm talking about, then please allow me to introduce the beautiful human Marsha Dunkline, O-T-R-L-M-E-D-F-A-O-T-A, and allow her to share the joy that is the Get Permission Approach and the newly created Get Permission Institute. And through that, allow her to fill your personal and professional cups the way she has done mine. So Marcia, thank you so much for coming back. You've had so many exciting things happen. And hi, how are you? (laughs) Michelle, I'm doing great. And I had so much fun on our podcast last time that I'm thrilled to be back. Thank you. Thank you. And wait, you just told me this past weekend that your garden is going beautifully. So what's growing in it, ma'am? Oh my goodness. I live in Arizona, so we get springtime earlier than most places, but I have basil and little tomatoes and zucchini and rosemary and thyme and parsley and shishito peppers and jalapeno peppers, parsley. Oh my goodness. I just love going out in my garden and picking all the spices that I'm going to cook with and then cooking with them. And Michelle, I love flowers. I just think A house needs to have fresh flowers at all times, and I grow flowers and cut them at all times. I have roses galore. That's awesome. We have my gladiolus just spiked in the back, and I love them. When I first put them in, it was like a a mixed variety of gladiolus, but the picture showed white and light purple, and I was really disappointed when they spiked and they were like dark purple, but four years later, they're like all different hues of purple from like midnight purple all the way to like the lightest lavender and they just spiked this year and I'm like it's gonna look like a purple rainbow in the back and that has made me very very happy <laughs> so, yes. I love it that's awesome okay so you have had quite the busy year even in the midst of a pandemic so I feel like when did anxious eaters anxious mealtime didn't that release right at the start of the pandemic you know, I started doing a two-day Anxious Eaters, Anxious Mealtime course about maybe five years ago. And about a year before the pandemic, I published the Anxious Eaters, Anxious Mealtime, Practical and Compassionate Strategies for Mealtime Peace, the book. So that was really, really exciting. And even more exciting is then some friends in Santiago, Chile have translated into Spanish and some friends in Greece have translated it into Greek. It's being translated into Portuguese, Turkish, and Polish. I just am thrilled that the information is being translated in various places around the world. And that's just filling my heart because I think the great ideas that we share in responsive, cue-based sensitive-based feeding techniques are spreading, and it just makes me happy. That's amazing. Our tiny but mighty university that I work at, Francis Marion University over in Florence, I had the pleasure this past semester of teaching a couple of classes within the dysphagia class. So it was the dysphagia class, but I taught three, maybe four days for the peds dysphagia portion. Being able to recommend that as a resource and then subsequently having one of my grad students text me and they're like, oh my gosh, Ms. Dawson, we love this book. One, it was really weird to be called Ms. Dawson and two, to see their joy in reading the book (laughs) was awesome. So it's like this twofold. I was like, wait, who's Ms. Dawson? Because I still feel like that's my mother-in-law who taught SPED when I was working with her as the SLPA. But to see their joy and discovering that we can use food and 
recreating, as you call it, putting joy back in with the family during mealtime and with the caregivers and focusing on that has just been eye-opening to watch the next generation discover that. So yes. So, okay, wait, I get ahead of myself because I'm just... Y'all, I still fangirl every time we talk and it's just, I mean, if an email pops up and it has Marsha Dunklein in the sender box, honestly, when I see the email, I'm like, (gasps) (laughs) so, okay, but let's take it from the top. And can you please start with what are the fundamentals behind the get permission approach? I've been doing feeding for a lot of years, as you well know, and I started off doing a lot of work with Suzanne Evans-Morris and we talked about cue-based, relationship-based trust-based feeding. And we've been doing that for decades, right? So it's certainly out there as the solid, solid foundation of what we do. But I began to realize in my career that because I was specializing in feeding, I got a lot of referrals that were second opinions. And I began to meet family upon family upon family that said, I went to this place and my child hated it. I didn't connect with the therapist. My child would cry in the parking lot. My child would gag and vomit throughout the whole feeding therapy. My child would scream during feeding therapy. I had people, Michelle, calling me saying, if I come to you, is my child going to be made to eat their vomit? I mean, just all kinds of really worried, worried parents. And I realized, wait, wait, that's just not okay for my heart. My heart wants to love children and have them find an enjoyable way to get to eating. My heart couldn't find a way to rationalize the amount of crying and discomfort that I was hearing from parents. And so I began to start collecting the strategies that I was using all the time and started doing some course teaching. And I started talking about that teaching as the get permission approach, which was a collection of strategies that really worked on supporting relationships, supporting a kind of gentler approach where we really started small, where the child was completely comfortable and tiptoed towards change, but in a way that brought the child along to a new place with their partnership, with their parents' success, and with small steps so that parents saw success and children felt success, but it wasn't going to be that off balance that I kept hearing about from other families. So these days, people are talking lots and lots about responsive feeding therapy. I suggest that people go towards the responsivefeedingtherapy.com website where there's a, a really great white paper that talks about the author's current definition of responsive feeding. But so we really, oh, I, Suzanne's in my lifetime of work and the discussions of responsive feeding therapy really blend together well. So first and foremost, in the get permission principles and in responsive feeding, we talk about relationship and that feeding starts from the relationship of newborn feeding, of the parent and child in that feeding relationship starts the beginning attachment, starts the beginning relationship. And we know from lots of research from lots of different fields that as children feel that attunement, that connection and that relationship, they can get comfortable enough to begin looking away from the parent, reaching out away from the parent, playing in their environment away from the parent, but then they come back to the parent for regulation. And gradually the child can feel regulated enough as a little human, as you call them, to reach out and explore the world. And from that place of a strong relationship, children in life learn to take risks. So that's one very important component is the relationship. Another one is is that is we want to help children learn to be independent and celebrate their autonomy. 
So from the very beginning that we offer children any food whatsoever, I mean, starting with breast and bottle, but then think about as we're introducing foods, we want to introduce foods in a way that expects the child is going to learn to be independent. So if we offer a spoon, they've got a spoon. We offer food on their tray and around them so that they can experience bringing it to their mouth because ultimately they need to be the independent ones. We want to make sure that we look and get permission at the motivation for eating. And that is that the motivation for eating needs to be internal. We want children to learn how to eat because they want to eat it, because they're hungry, curious, they're imitating their grown-ups and their people in their environment. They're interested in the sensory aspects of it, that the motivation is coming from them. And I've seen way too many therapy sessions and therapy approaches where the motivation is external, where children are made to do eating because the grown-up told them they had to, or in some way, on purpose or not on purpose, put pressure on those children to eat more, to eat differently. And so that would be external motivation. And in Get Permission, we are aiming for internal motivation. And then we want to make sure that children grow up to be capable and confident eaters. And in Get Permission, we talk a lot about what do we need to do to adapt to the world so these children can be completely capable and independent. And what can we do as therapists to help children learn new skills and learn confidence in those skills? And Michelle, I think what we do a lot in therapy and what I have certainly done is a child makes this little bit of progress and then we go to the next harder, next harder, next harder, next harder. We keep making it harder, sort of think of that vertically. But what I want to think about also, and I do this and get permission, is once you get to a new step, can we hang around horizontally here and do what I describe as confidence building, practice, help the child really feel good about themselves at that level before we immediately make our challenges harder. That's a very quick, quick, quick overview of some of the main tenets of Get Permission. So I just recently started physical therapy for a very, very, very old shoulder injury and a knee injury. And my physical therapist, bless his heart, He's like, you know, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm a speech pathologist, but I work on feeding. And I mean, it's like deer in headlights, bless his heart. I mean, he's a phenomenal PT, but when you're like, oh, I specialize in swallowing disorders, they're like, hmm. I'm like, yeah, no, that's not really what I do. I'm like, the focus of my work is on pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders, blah, blah, blah. But it's funny to see their deer in headlights approach. And as he's trying to teach me how to strength change for my kneecap and like getting it in place and working on my my right thigh, he used that analogy. And we're talking about something that I've done within just the last six weeks, but to see a different profession embrace that, hey, you have strengthened this muscle so that you can do this. But before I increase the frequency demand of your squats or the depth of your squat, or the weight that you carry when you're working on your squats. I have a really, really weak right thigh muscle. I don't really know what that muscle is called, but like, I mean, bless him. He's told me like a hundred different times, but he keeps saying before I increase the demand, once you meet the goal, we have to make sure you're comfortable there before I ask the next step of you. And the next step could be increasing frequency, increasing weight, or increasing depth of that one physical activity. 
and to me that carried over to feeding before I ask you to eat more of this or before I ask you to eat this slightly different or before I ask you to eat this at a different time of day or in a different setting or with a different person, I have to make sure that you're comfortable in the here and now before we do that next piece. And honestly, I didn't realize how pursuing physical therapy so that I could simply move better and engage better with my own tiny humans who are not so tiny as they used to be. The eight-year-old has started wearing deodorant because he's rather odiferous, but like they're still kind of tiny humans. But I didn't realize how much physical therapy would correlate to what it is that I do as a pediatric feeding disorder therapist. And it was kind of cool. There is a relationship. I have a son who's a physical therapist. And the idea that we need to practice and hang at level for confidence building, I think is very important because as you well know, many of the children that we see, specifically in the Anxious Eater book, I'm talking about really picky, anxious, very worried eaters. And if you're coming to the table from a level of worry and with a level of worry, Will there be a new food? Will I know what food's on the table? Will I like it? What if it's new? All of those kind of worries that come and the worries keep changing. You have a new food and then a new food and then a new food and you need to eat more. And we keep going higher and higher in terms of the level of difficulty. But without giving the children time to practice and get confidence, we are not doing them a service. So when I'm teaching young therapists nowadays, I really build in this layer that I call confidence building. Yes. That's with all things that you do. I mean, folks, if you're listening, think about your personal life. How would you feel if a stranger asked you to do a task that you've always been afraid of doing, whether that be skydiving or whether that be, what if you're afraid of heights? Personally, I do not like rotating circular doors in glass. That's not normal. You don't know if you're going to get off on time. What if it eats your backpack? Also escalators. My dad told me sharks live at the bottom of the escalator. And if you go down the escalator and you don't get off in time, the shark will eat you. Can I tell you how traumatized I was as a tiny human? Also, when the boys were old enough and we were able to go to the library, I'm like, make sure you jump because the sharks will eat you at the other side. And like, you know, I mean, I totally carried that forward, but like I was definitely scarred for a brief period of my life. But I mean, if somebody comes in and they're dealing with that fear and honest to goodness, fear. And just as you're building trust, they say, hey, now I want you to jump out of an airplane as opposed to jumping off of a bridge with a rope attached to you. I'd be a little petrified as well. So this is why we have to build trust and confidence at the level that they have met us at before we proceed. Exactly. Just sense. But sometimes I just want to say that I, I want to bring common sense back into our therapy <laughs> because sometimes we come up with things and we forget about that whole common sense part. Yeah. I had the pleasure of being in Greenville this past weekend and lecturing and it felt, when it felt so good, it was like riding a bike and you get back on after such a period of time because of the pandemic. And when I was able to watch, I do this activity where y'all, I first and foremost, if the patient can feed themselves, I mean, you know, when they're super teeny tiny, yes, they don't know how to feed themselves because they're not there yet. But once they can, or it's appropriate to work with the occupational therapist on self-feeding, I have them embrace that. 
And so what I do with my adults is I inhibit their oral preparatory stage and I have their counterpart feed them. And it's really amazing to watch their anxiety build because you don't know where the bolus is going to get placed. And I'm like, and that is why we engage in the oral preparatory skill in order to increase the oral and pharyngeal stage of the swallow awareness and productivity. But it was just common sense. Yes. Okay. I'm sorry. Squirrel, number one, there'll be a lot of those today, folks, because of the joy of this. But how do we over-therapize? And you and I had this debate. We think that's a word, so we're going to claim that over-therapizing is a word. But how can we speak? Can you speak to how we over-therapize our patients? Yes. And I do believe that we have tended to over-therapize. Remember, first off, the parents provide the the where, the what, and the when. And the children decide, am I going to eat that or not? And how much am I going to eat? And if if you're aiming for internal motivation, you want to make sure children eat when they're hungry and stop when they're full and they get to be in charge of that. But what happens is we sometimes in therapy have a plan that says, I want to get you to eat more, right? And so my focus and part of the focus of Get Permission is it's not our job to get children to eat more. It's our job to set up the environment, the food, the meal times, the opportunity for that child to want to eat more of different foods in a developmental progression that is comfortable, safe, developmentally appropriate, sensorily appropriate, motor appropriate, emotionally appropriate, and confidence appropriate, right? And I call that grading the ask, A-S-K. So what happens is that I think sometimes we, in our enthusiasm as therapists, and, and again, I've done this, Michelle, we, we all evolve, I think, and we, we get better, I think, right? But we go in and we want to therapize. We want to go in and, oh, I have to fix your tongue and make it work to the side and I have to make it work over here and I have to help your lips work over here differently and I have to do all this stuff to you to get you to eat. And yes, there are places where, just like going to your physical therapist, Things need to be trained differently. And absolutely, that does occur. That child has no ability to move their tongue to the side. So we actually need to physically help that child move to the side after they've had a tongue tie release, just for example, right? But I think we have to be careful not to jump right in with tools and things and therapy when sometimes... We just need to give children the opportunity. One of my very basic beliefs in the Get Permission approach is that we need to give children, and and in my responsive feeding hat, we need to give children the opportunity to be around foods. So first and foremost, we want to give children the opportunity to be at mealtimes with other people. Because from mealtimes, you have the opportunity to see other people eating things you don't eat yet. And to smell things or maybe touch things, past things, you get the opportunity to interact with those foods. When we give a a 10-month-old new foods on their tray, we're giving them the opportunity to interact with the sensory parts of those foods, to pick it up, to touch it, to put it down, put it in their mouth, spit it out, play with it, get friendly with it, smell it. They are exploring the sensory aspects of that food at the way they can. We're not saying to them, now you need to eat two cups of this. We're saying, here you are, meat pasta with your fingers, right? And the child is learning what to do that works for them and they get better. And so in typical development, children don't need therapy to go from introduction of beginning little tastes of foods to 
you know, two and a half years old and being a really good chewer, eating a huge, 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 huge variety of foods. They learned that without therapy. They learned it because opportunity that was developmentally appropriate and safe and practice and their motivation to interact with it got them there. But sometimes we have kiddos that we're working with that we first, I think we over-therapize by first jumping into how to do it and pushing them to try things that they may not be ready to eat yet. Whereas if we offered the therapeutic activities in a way that I'm going to call opportunity, we can often get to the same end result without even putting hands on, without even doing therapeutic activities. And if you'll humor me, Michelle, I would be happy to give you a couple little case study examples that make this clearer. Because I do think that opportunity is going to be our starting place. And I'm going to call it responsive opportunity. But I also think some children need very specific guidance. But I want to make sure that guidance is also responsive. So let's look at the responsive opportunity end of this continuum with a little boy named Benson. Folks, just so you know, Benson is HIPAA compliant. So let's imagine a little person named Benson. He's three and a half years old, and he has a diagnosis of autism. So imagine that he doesn't like wearing clothes. He likes wearing his diaper, and he's the busiest, sweetest little guy. He walks around the house, picking up this, picking up that. It's hard for him to focus yet on doing many kind of traditional three-and-a-half-year-old games. I asked his parents, and imagine this is telehealth now, and I asked his parents, well, do you, does he get to be at the mealtime with other people? Because I'm always wondering, you know, is he somewhere he, where he can be learning about food from other people? And they said, no, no, no. He gets up, he gets down. He's very disruptive at the table. It's just hard for him to be there. So he picks up spoons and drops them and throws them and tips over somebody else's milk. And really, my husband's not so excited about him being at the table just yet because he's not really ready. All right. So where does he eat? He eats on a little table over in the corner, his size little table. And what does he eat? Well, his mom gives him a platter and she puts on three kinds of fruit that he likes. He likes pineapple, melon, and grapes. And she gives him two or three kinds of crackers, chips and crackers that he likes. And then during the day, he drinks a bottle. And he can carry his bottle around anytime he wants to, and he drinks milk. And that's how she feels comfortable that she's giving him more calories and a better balance in his diet. So think about this for a second. He's a little guy that eats all day long, and he's not yet able to be at the table with other people. So he only really learns about those few little foods that are at his table and his milk. So the way I talk with parents, I do a question, Michelle, that I call, what would happen if? So when I asked what would happen if he were at the table with you, she described how disruptive he was. When I say, what would happen if you put down the platter that you gave him and the crackers and the milk, but you gave him those maybe four or five times a day, but then you picked him up. In that way, you might help him eat in a shorter period of time, eat when he's hungry, develop hunger between meals. And we could help him get on kind of a more of a meal and a snack cycle because what we know is in order to help give children the opportunity to be hungry at a mealtime, 
or to try new things at a mealtime, we want to give them the opportunity to be hungry, right? So she said, oh, I can do that easy. So, okay, that's the first start. Sort of just helping him regulate his body by giving him food, not all day long when he was grazing and, and having no appetite. Okay, so that worked. And a couple of days later, no problem. He's doing really well with it. He's eating more foods each time he stands there. He's eating more focused. He's not wandering quite as much. He's a little bit staying at the table a little longer. Great. Okay. Now what we're thinking about is, hmm, what would happen if you put another food on that table, like a strawberry? Would he be really unhappy and throw it across the room or would he let it sit there? What would happen? And she said, oh, I don't think he'd care, but let's try that. And so why am I trying that? Because before we change much about his little eating environment, I have to know this next level of understanding, which is what I call change happens. Can he understand that change can happen around mealtime and he's going to live through it? And the change that I'm suggesting right now is not on his platter, not in his bowls of crackers, but on the side of his little table, maybe put a couple strawberries. Mom said, oh yeah, I can do that. So she did that and found out he didn't care. Not only did he not care, but he put up with it and actually picked it up and put it down. Okay. At least he didn't throw it across the room and that's okay. All right. What would happen next if you took the fruit that he's having and you stuck forks in it and maybe party picks, maybe little straws so that or utensils? Little appetizer ones. Yeah. Yes. She said, I never did that, but I could do that. So that was the next layer we did. And it turns out he didn't mind that at all. Not only did he not mind that, but he took the fork out and in and out and in and out and in and and started having experience with utensils. Opportunity. Because he'd never had opportunity with utensils. Okay, great. The next layer was, could he have the opportunity to eat with somebody? So could little brother sit at the table with him and eat strawberries while there's more strawberries on the table? Sure, we can try that. That not only worked, but while little brother was at the table, Benson started picking up strawberries, putting them on the fork, taking them off the fork, and then put one in his mouth, bit a little piece out of it, then another piece, ate a whole strawberry. That's huge. I mean, just the just simply touching it and not checking it in my book is huge. So like the fact that he ate it was, that's phenomenal. And nobody said, you must sit here and lick this three times before you get to eat your pineapple, right? Nobody said you need to eat it. There was no pressure. There was not even any guidance. We are, first of all, first, we're seeing if opportunity all by itself is enough, right? So then, oh, it gets better, Michelle. This is the best story. So then we said to mom, you know, what would happen if you ate your lunch near him a few times this week? We knew we didn't want to make any changes at dinner time and disrupt the family meal. And we knew mom didn't have time to just therapize during the day. And we're still giving opportunities. So what would happen if he gets to be around new foods that he hasn't eaten yet? And let's just see what he does. But you don't get to ask him to eat any. You don't even get to put any on his tray unless he begins to show some interest in it. So she sat down near him and ate her salad. First day, he kind of ignored her. Second day, he reaches over for a piece of lettuce. By the end of the week, he is eating, eating three different kinds of lettuce on purpose, on his own, started out out of her tray, and then gradually she put a few on his tray, and he still ate it. Pretty exciting. So then we said, 
wait, what would happen if we think about some foods he used to like? Because those foods that kids lost that they used to like, and parents, I'm telling you, parents of picky eaters who talk about their list of their kids' foods, always have a list of preferred foods and always have a list of foods that they used to eat and quit, right? So what were some of those? Well, she talked about spaghetti. She talked about pancakes. She talked about bacon. So I said, this week, one day, could you eat spaghetti? Could that be your lunch that you eat near him? So we just see what happens. So she started eating spaghetti near him. He reached for it. He started reaching for it with his fingers. She put some on his tray. He started putting it in his mouth, taking it out, playing with it. Next thing you know, she gives him a pile on his tray and he starts eating the spaghetti with the fork. Now, he's not great at it yet, of course, but he's now figured out there's a fork and there's spaghetti. And, huh, I sort of remember this stuff. And he starts eating the spaghetti. And he then did that with bacon and with pancakes a few days later. So it took this child who had an extremely limited diet with a very lot of milk, four months with just a little bit of negotiation and support from telehealth, I never touched this child. The the therapist that I was treating with never touched this child. It was just having conversations with the parent that provide him with graded, now notice this was careful, graded opportunity. We didn't start by not giving him anything he knew. We didn't start by putting new things right on his tray. We tiptoed. But can you see, Michelle, how this just with carefully graded opportunity This child needed no therapy. And mom called us up after four months and said, he's now added 50 foods. He doesn't need therapy at all. We're great. We're done. And and this might not be the, the exact story with everybody, but can you see how in a different approach where we said, let's help him chew better. Let's help him touch three foods before he gets four foods, before he gets with a kind of a heavier handed approach where we missed well, but we were pushing. Can you see how this worked so much better? I cannot tell you how learning from you and seeing, okay, once upon a time, folks, here I go admitting, once upon a time, I was the queen of all things vibrating and plastic. And I did this to every single patient because that's what I saw my colleagues do. And then a parent asked me, why are you doing that to my child? And I said, oh, because I have to wake up their face before we begin PO trials. Like one Do not use technical jargon with your families because they don't know what it is that you're talking about. We need to code switch and we need to use non-technical jargon. And two, I couldn't explain my rationale because you know what? I honest to God didn't have the foundation and the knowledge and the skills to explain it past. This is what I saw my colleagues do. I can't actually fundamentally tell you what it is I'm doing to their one, central pattern generators, two, to their proprioceptive, three, their interceptive, like all of the different pieces that I was trying to engage in, right? So backtrack, big step back. And then that's how I started down research in the sense, not like international review board research, but like research for personal growth research. And that's how I learned basically about you and Suzanne Sever Morris and like y'all's work and like all of this. And I no longer, to my knowledge, over-therapize my patients. I meet them where they are and I slowly change one degree here and there. The fact that you went with spaghetti, 
I just had a little girl a couple weeks ago with one of my students. We slowly changed and talked with the mom about, you know, what it is that you eat, what it is that you guys do. And the occupational therapist who is, she's a baby whisperer. She works 20 minutes away from our university clinic. I started collaborating with her. I referred the mom there. And the occupational therapy grad student pulled in Very Hungry Caterpillar and started working through Very Hungry Caterpillar in their sessions. And the student showed up or the patient showed up and she was so excited about this activity. So what we did was we carried it over into our speech therapy sessions. And you know, I'd work back and forth with the OT and we'd had a lot of phone calls and interprofessional practice at its finest. And we pulled in, have you ever played the game, The Yeti and My Spaghetti? Yes. Love that game. Yes. We love that. And they had a book. So we pulled in, I told the mom, I was like, and the boys have outgrown the Yeti and my spaghetti game. So like I brought it into the university clinic and like donated it because that's what you do. Right. And I gave the, the game and the book to the mom and I was like, just, you know, cause they, I knew that they had family game night. So I wasn't asking something vertically. It was horizontal. It was something that they're already doing, but let's put you know, let's put a food-based game into what it is that you're doing. And a week later, they came back and the little girl shows up and she goes, there was a Yeti in my spaghetti and I ate it. (laughs) She started eating. I mean, like she was talking about like fake spaghetti when she came in the door. But by the end of the session, she was sneaking and tiptoeing behind the mom and eating the buttered noodle spaghetti that mom brought in. And then she was feeding her baby doll the buttered noodle spaghetti. And then she fed her baby doll the spaghetti sauce spaghetti. And then she was eating. And like mom's ugly crying. I'm ugly. I mean, it didn't take me much to cry, but like we're all crying, right? And it was absolutely beautiful. It was the power of the suggestion and power of allowing them to do something that was in their norm of realm. They already have family game night. The family already eats spaghetti. And it was just with tiny tweaks and suggestions and allowing her to have permission to do it herself and to herself that this child was able to eat that without me forcing a, I need you to bite this for repetitions at this frequency. And to do, I mean, it was, it was powerful. You and mom were showing what you were doing with it. So you were demonstrating some options. You were giving her choices. I mean, choices that she could, of course, interact with it or not. And feeding the baby and diluting the worry. The, the thing that I didn't hear in your voice was, we need to get in a certain amount. You're giving her the opportunity and she's ready because she knows how her body feels. She knows when her mouth is ready. When she's ready, she started it. And when she's the motivator, of this activity, she's going to make much more progress. Now, I will say that I do believe in responsive opportunity to start with children because so many children learn so much. They just need experience with it and motivated experience. There are some children that you give them experience forever. I know some 12-year-old picky eaters that on their own, their experience is, I would never be in the kitchen. I would never be around food. I would never, ever be in the neighborhood of food. I will sneak my goldfish and that's all I'm going to eat, right? There are some children that I describe that could use some responsive guidance. Guidance might be, hey, Johnny, 12-year-old, sometimes those 12-year-olds need strategies for if you need a food that you want to try when you're ready, can I show you some ways you could try that that might work better for you? 
right? And that's when we might help them understand the sensory properties of that food ahead of time and give them a strategy, but not a requirement, not a protocol, not a demand, but some strategies. Or there are some children that with opportunity, they can't quite ever figure out how to pull their tongue in and to the side and need a little more strategic support to do that. I will say that I do know that that happens with some kids and needs to happen with some kids. However, if we're going to do a therapeutic activity, you were talking about tools early. If you're going to use teach toothbrushing, if you're going to do a therapeutic activity, please still do it in partnership with children. Still do it with letting them interact with that toothbrush ahead of time before we just shove it in their mouth. Let them play with it and see what they come up with. Maybe we guide a little bit while they're holding on to it. When they feel like it's too far in their mouth, they get to pull it out. They don't have to be gagging and crying and screaming through the whole toothbrushing to get better at it. So there are times when a strategic strategy might need to be taught, but we can still do that responsibly and in partnership with children. And we don't need to tip over to that pressured side of making kids worry and be really stressed. And one thing that big picture, this little one actually had, and I know you actually, you and I talked this, I talked about this yesterday while I was driving and we at Bluetooth hands-free, I was safe, I promise. But we had the conversation. This was the little one that I had to get back to what's going on medically. And it took her seeing neuro GI and a OTPT and a chiropractor, and then eventually getting started on periactin for motility before she would even engage with anything. She had profound torticollis that had gone undiagnosed for years. And to the point that like, you could actually look at her clavicle and her shoulders and her neck at three and a half and see how skewed it was. And the OT that was working on the, uh, with her when, and she was explaining like how like her spine and her ribs had tilted to the point that it was almost impeding the flow of her esophagus such that her esophagus was tilted. And she was like, I'm actually worried about her cricopharyngeus and it's functioning like its ability to open. So y'all like the upper esophageal sphincter, the OT was and the chiropractor were legitimately worried about whether or not it was actually fully opening when she went to swallow the bolus because of her, her orthopedic positioning. But it was, if you looked at her and you didn't know what you were looking at, totally beautiful, happy-go-lucky three-and-a-half-year-old with a whole bunch of sass and quote-unquote behavioral feeding issues. But when you actually started peeling away the layers like an onion and did the root cause analysis, there was one thing leading to another thing leading to another thing that when we got the whole team involved and she got OTPT, chiropractor speech, we got her to the GI, they started the perioctin for the motility to help that's when we hit that point of healing where she allowed herself to do what it is that the whole team was doing. And it was just, yeah, that was, that's really, really cool. I see her again in two weeks and I'm excited to see what she's doing now. <laughs> in a way that you, you, you we want to give her opportunities, but these doesn't feel well. And if her systems don't work, then those opportunities won't be healthy, available, and places to learn from. She will learn wrong, or she'll learn that it doesn't feel good, or she'll learn that big compensations. So so before opportunity, and you're right to mention that, um, that's sort of the assumption in, in how I see kids. But yes, we have to make sure that they feel well enough and are 
physically capable. And because otherwise, poor little thing, we just frustrate him by trying to have her do things that she's not capable of. And then she could inadvertently end up being called a behavior problem because she's not doing what the grownups around her wanted. But in fact, she was communicating with her behaviors that this isn't working for me. Thank you. I need something different and good for you and your team to figure out what that was. And I happen to know that you have just written a book about all the different team members that need to be involved to help make this work for families. And so, yay, and thank you for that contribution to our field. Oh, my God. The fact that you just referenced that, my face hurts from smiling so much right now. But yes, yes, I did. And thank you. And so, y'all, go check out Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders. It's all about finding out the different interprofessional practice partners. And y'all, OTs have a significant contribution there because... Again, you're only as good as the team that it is that you make for the little one you've been called to serve. Don't forget that. It's not about being a silo practitioner. It's about working with the team. Okay. Oh my God. I'm totally blushing. (laughs) Okay. All right. Can we hit your next case study? The quote unquote, Sir Jason, because again, HIPAA compliance. (laughs) Well, I'll try to do this one a little quicker because I think you and I could talk for three hours with this. Yes, we could. (laughs) Do we have time for Jason? Oh, yes, yes, yes. We can hit Jason and and then go in because I do want to hear about mouthing and the joyful creation that you just birthed without actually birthing. But yes, all the things. (laughs) Okay. So Jason, nine-year-old, also with a diagnosis of autism. And so when you ask the parent, you know, what's the list of foods he eats? He eats two different kinds of formula that he drinks, two different cans of formula each meal three times a day, gets his sufficient calories there. And he eats a couple kinds of crackery, dry things, and that's it. Now, I'm always, you know me, Michelle, I'm always trying to check out what kind of pressure is there at the mealtime. Is there any pressure at all? And in this case, I would describe it as a pretty pressure-free environment. The parents just love him and adore him for who he is, and they will not pressure him at all. So that mom will say, hey, Jason, do you want to eat dinner with us? And he'll say, no, thank you. And he'll be over. <laughs> oh my God, that's so polite. Adorable. No, thank you. And they say, okay. And they give him his choice and they do not pressure him. And quite frankly, when environments of mealtime start out without pressure, it's a much easier place to start in helping families. Same thing happened with Benson. There was not pressure to start with. Jason's got, he does eat three meals a day. He does eat them sitting somewhere. He does have hunger in between. So he's already set up for that. That's great. But, oh my goodness, he never gets to be around other people eating food that he doesn't yet eat because he doesn't want to eat with the family. And his family has been delightful and not pressuring him. And the mealtime, for whatever reasons, has been too much for him. So we'd say to mom, so mom, what would happen if he, you know, if you invite him into the kitchen to help you cook when you're cooking? And she goes, I think he'd love that. And she said, you know... I never invite him into the kitchen to help cook because his older sisters are my cooking helpers. It never occurred to me to have him help in the kitchen. So great. Do you think that's a possibility? Do you think he could help you cook a little bit? She said, oh, I think he'd be so proud. Then we said, well, do you think that we could find ways together for him to be around more foods on a regular basis? So for example, in the morning when little baby brother that's three is eating breakfast. Could Jason sit with baby brother while baby brother is having his breakfast? 
Not that he's going to be getting, he's not having a plate of food for himself. Not that he's being required to eat or asked to eat. Just could he be the big brother helper sitting with the brother? Now, do you see what we're doing? We're diluting the word, right? We are not starting pressure. We're not having him think every time I sit with my brother, I'm going to be expected to try things. Just could he be there? And mom said, absolutely, we can do that. As a matter of fact, I'm going to make pancakes tomorrow. And he could sit with his brother while his brother's eating pancakes. Could he help you cook the pancakes? Or at least sort of, could you have him notice what you're doing while you're making the pancakes? And did he ever used to eat pancakes? Yes. That's one of his lost foods. So we're in a win-win here. So this was the conversation that happened in the first telehealth conversation. The next day, the mom did the pancake thing with the little brother. And the and Jason was thrilled to be the big brother helper. So proud. He got the spoon for the little brother and the fork for the little brother. And he helped bring the pancakes from the pan where mom was cooking them to the table. Sat with the little brother the whole time. Brother wanted a second pancake. He helped get the second pancake for the little brother. Little brother's finished, leaves the table. And he says to his mom, I want one. That's amazing. Don't you just feel like you won the lottery when they say that? I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. So he ate a pancake. Mom texted us immediately, is thrilled to death that he did this. And she got it. She got the idea that we're not going to start building in pressure. We're just going to give him opportunity and rehearsals around food. So she said, so tonight I told him he could help make a quesadilla for dad. All day long, he's excited. At dinner time. I'm going to help make a quesadilla. Can I go back and say, also, we talked to her about we're looking together to find out where can he be celebrated around food that has nothing to do with trying new foods. We want to find celebration around food. So he, first of all, was celebrated for being the big brother helper in the pancakes, celebrated for serving the pancakes, celebrating, celebrated for participating in that activity, right? Now, he's going to feel celebrated by making a quesadilla for his dad, right? So mom said, um, we're going to do this. He said, and mom said, well, do you think you want to make a, can we make a movie of you doing this? So they were going to send movies to Katie and I. So in order to get his movie taken, he went and got a special little hat because that was his, I'm going to have a movie taken about myself hat. Adorable. It looked like a tiger. And then he, a mom showed him, this is what we do. We open the cheese of this little Mexican four blend cheese and we put a cheese in a pile on this quesadilla. And now I go over to the oven and I'm going to, or the pan and I'm going to, fry it and turn it over. And then we cut it with a pizza cutter. And so then he took the open bag of cheese and he started putting cheese on the tortilla, took a little piece and put it in his mouth, put more cheese on the tortilla, another little piece in his mouth. And by the end of making the quesadilla, he had a mouthful, a cheek bulge full of cheese in his own mouth. Nobody asked him to try it. And then by the time he got through the whole activity and offered the cheese quesadilla to his dad, his dad was super appropriate, thrilled and reinforcing. Thank you. You make cheese quesadillas as good as mom does. They're so terrific. There's so much cheese in them. And he sat there beaming ear to ear, reached down, took a piece of the quesadilla and took a bite on his own. That's this amazing. is exactly what I mean by opportunities. These are rehearsals in food interactions. He got used to the food. He got to see other people eating the food. He got to touch it and get up close and personal with the sensory variables of it without one iota of pressure. And what I say about therapizing is we could have just, and in years past, I would have brought him into the clinic and tried to teach him how to try new foods. And I would have gotten a little more 
therapy heavy. But what I realize now is many children, just with this level of rehearsal, make changes enough that to build on. And the parents are thrilled because did I ask this mom to sit there, go buy five different kind of foods and sit there for 30 minutes every day to make him do this, this, and this. She's a busy mom. She's got five kids. I didn't do any of that. We only said, could you include him in food opportunities? Could you give him rehearsals around food just as a part of your natural routine and look at how well it worked? And again, these two are magical studies that are very exciting, but you'll find that magic happens a lot more than you expect when you first give kids opportunity. When there's something to be said about grad school, and I don't, I mean, I'm not an occupational therapist. I don't know what graduate studies actually include within the OT realm, but within the speech therapy world, we don't talk enough about the therapeutic, like SLP world. We don't talk enough about therapeutic use of self and therapeutic presence. And we don't acknowledge the trauma that a lot of our little ones that have PFD and their families have gone through. And that's a significant disservice because I mean, I know the trauma that I sustained having labor sucked all those times and then having two preemies and one of them spending a night in the NICU and and then subsequently getting RSV and then having to go back into the hospital. And it was like this crescendo of events that, I mean, it honestly, it took one of my very dear friends, Crystal, Crystal Vermillion, she's an OT with um, Shriners, and it took her turning around and telling me when the little one, when Bear was two, so you're talking like four and a half years ago. She was like, Michelle, you hold your patients more accountable than you do your own little one. She was like, hold Bear accountable. He can do these things. He can do hard things. You're making excuses just because he can't hear you. And I mean, subsequently, like we've had surgeries and he can hear now, but she was 110% right. As a parent, I was letting, I was letting Bear get away with murder. And and now I'm like, no. And we had the conversation today on the soccer fields. I was like, child, you are holding us ransom because it's hot and sweaty and you don't want to do the thing. We're fine. You're okay. Listen to your body and listen to yourself. How do you feel? And once we like had the conversation and he was able to check in with himself he went back out on the soccer fields and played with mommy and daddy and goose. We were playing adults versus kids and they more or less creamed us because goose can now drop kick a soccer ball, but giving him that ability to tune in with himself and then lead it. That was profound because I had to be a therapist slightly in order to be his mother. And and I don't know if that's covered in OT school, but y'all we have to remember that just your presence in the room When you're reading, read the room. If you see that the child is incredibly anxious, we have to step back, especially if they've gone through really aggressive feeding therapy previously. Take a step back and meet them where they are, because if we don't, then we're failing them before we begin. Also, there's a really good book. I'm sure you know about it, The Polyvagal Theory. Steve Porges. Yes. And there's a book that's absolutely phenomenal. And of course I can't find it. I have it saved. Um, you know what? I might've ordered it and that might be why it's not saved. Why are the anxious brain? Yes, that's it. Wait, say that again, please. Rewire the anxious brain, I think is the title. Or rewiring your anxious brain, maybe. Those are phenomenal. Highly recommend that. Okay. 
Well, so we'll go slightly over because we're out of time, but can we go a little bit over just because I do want to hear all about mouthing and how you utilize mouthing and then your joyful news. I'll just say that I think that we need to give children the opportunity to mouth toys when they're little, that from mouthing, it is an opportunity for children to give themselves their own experiences with with texture, with different shapes, different tastes, different feels. And each time a child brings their fingers to their mouth or a toy to their mouth in different ways, they have to create a new motor plan to figure out how their mouth should adjust to that shape of that thing. And those are all very pre-eating, pre-chewing, pre-oral interactional skills. And so I think we really need to help children have those opportunities. Think about it for a second. When you look, when you eat a bagel, you look at how big it is and you know how big and wide to open that mouth to grab that bagel with your teeth because you've had visual, perceptual, oral motor feedback from a lot of your mouthing early experiences, right? You know that if you're eating a potato chip, you just open your mouth a little bit. Or if you're bringing a straw to your mouth, you know to bring it to your mouth in a, in a rounded lip sh- shape. You've learned all that because you've practiced bringing lots of things to your mouth. So I think mouthing needs to be sort of a layer in what we think about with children, with little children, with eating. And in honor of that, I've just invented, Michelle, a little teether called the teether heart. And it's a little sweet teether heart that has lovely texture. It has a little handle. And the reason it's a heart is because I want to reinforce and celebrate that we're bringing love into this eating relationship, love into what we're trying to help children learn about their mouths, feeding with love, interacting with food with love, that the whole get permission approach has love. And so parents can give this little mouthing heart, teether heart, to children. And it's a reminder of that love that we're celebrating. In my heart and in my imagination, I would love to get these by the bag full and give them out in clinics with young babies so that parents are reminded this is an activity with love. Give children opportunity and and celebrate the love of oral play and interaction. Celebrate that we're offering food to babies to find out what do you love? Because we're building a lifetime of enjoyable eating experiences. And so that's why it's a heart. It's available through special supplies. It's called the Teether Heart. And if you use the code MARSHA20, you'll get 20% off. Huzzah! (laughs) And y'all seriously stay tuned to uh, the First Bite podcast Instagram account because I guarantee that little bag of heart joy will show up in a giveaway in the near future. So, yes. <laughs> Yay. Oh, my stars. Okay. So, I know we're already over it, but can you please tell us about the new Get Permission Institute that you just created? I'll do it quickly, Michelle. So, I'm the co-founder with Karen Dilfer and Stephanie Cohen of the Get Permission Institute. And it's one of those ways where COVID gave us stay at home, but COVID also gave us learning the technology of webinars. And we all have really celebrated that we can 
be at home and learn a lot. There's so much to know in this world and we can be at home and learn it on our computers. And so, of course, I still like to travel. It is my favorite thing to do. So I don't want to stay home forever. But in this period of time, now that I've learned the webinar technology, we are setting up the Get Permission Institute. It's been launched. I'm offering Get Permission classes on it that will be populating more and more each week as we move forward. I'm giving my two-day anxious eater class in a 15-hour webinar series in June in U.S. time zones and in Australian time zones in July. And then we're offering not only the big classes, but also little one and two-hour get permission concept classes like grading the ask like toothbrushing one, two, three, food stretches, like food is sensory. Just a lot of the topics that we talk about and get permission, each topic can be its own two-hour in-depth look at that topic. So I'm pretty excited. And we're going to have a perspective series where guest speakers talk about lots of things that relate to feeding that are compatible with this responsive get permission kind of approach to feeding. And Michelle has told us that she would do it course sometime. So that'll be down the line as we get our feet on the ground with the Get Permission Institute. But it's getpermissioninstitute.com, Michelle, and I think it's going to be helpful in the universe. Oh my gosh, it's going to be amazing. Y'all, my face hurts. I've smiled so much this entire hour and change, but... Thank you, Marcia. Marcia. I can't just call you. It has to go Marcia Dunklein because it feels like it's like you have to say your whole beautiful name. And thank you because this is, you are giving us permission to meet the tiny humans and their caregivers where they are and take them on that next step. And your work has been a legacy of love. So thank you for giving us this and continuing to give us more. So, oh my gosh. Thank you. Y'all, please check her out on Instagram at Get Permission Approach, their website, Facebook page. And as always, we love it when you go on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review, tell us how we did, and feel free to email, call, text, message us. We're here. But Marcia, thank you so much. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, 
and feed those babies. Bye.